Welcome to Self-Compassionate Professor, a career wellness podcast for mid-career and recovering academics who want more. More meaning, balance, rest, joy, and more clarity. Our motto here is no regrets. So glad you're here. Welcome, welcome. Thanks for joining. This is Danielle Delamar, and you're listening to episode 132. And I have a brand new interview today. Are you excited? (laughs) Um, I had the summer break, and I re-released a bunch of interviews. And based on the work that I do, right? I mean, I consider myself a wellness coach. I'm a career wellness coach and I know how important it is to take breaks. I know how important it is to disconnect. I know how important it is to feel that sense of spaciousness. My inner wisdom spoke very loudly and very clearly to me that I needed to take a break. And I was clear and grounded about that decision. And then what happened along the way, (laughs) as tends to happen, is that my inner critic would show up with all these arguments about why I was doing a bad thing, why it was wrong to do what I was doing. And it's funny because every time that would happen, I would have to have a conversation with my inner critic. I would have to explain to her why my work was actually better for having taken the break, right? Because that's my inner critic. It's always super, super worried that I am going to mess up, that I am going to show the world that I'm incompetent. And when I can talk to her on her level and be like, look, the work you're doing is actually better because you took the break, because you're taking a break, because you have more space to devote to this thing and the other thing And I got to say, I think we came to an understanding. (laughs) I think she started to trust that. Like, yeah, I mean, we still have podcast listeners. We are doing some really interesting and fun things that we wouldn't have been able to do had we not taken this break. And thankfully, I'm at a point in my own sort of personal development that I can hold myself and support myself through the fears that come up, right? I can trust that my inner wisdom knows what to do and I can ground myself in that. I mean, certainly I have moments where I can't, but I know how to work through those moments, right? And if you want more wellness in your life, in your job, if you want to be able to tap into your inner wisdom, I'm opening the doors for my sabbatical program again, and they open September 22nd, and there I'll hold space for you. I will advocate for your inner wisdom. I will help you on your wellness journey, and so will the other people in the group. And just so you know, there has been some confusion. Some people think that if they're going to join the sabbatical program, they have to be on sabbatical. That is not the case, okay? So I do have some people in the sabbatical program right now who are on sabbatical or at least will be while they're in the program, but that is not a requirement. You know, most people are not. It's really about adopting a sabbatical mindset. It's about going inward. It's about 
finding wellness. It's about making career decisions that support you so that you can walk a self-compassionate path. So yeah, doors open September 22nd. If you are interested, I'm happy to talk. You can set up a 20-minute consult with me by emailing me at danielle at selfcompassionateprofessor.com. And it's danielle, D-A-N-I-E-L-L-E. But now I want to introduce you to my new interview. Dr. Erin McTighe dun, 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 is going to talk to us about the soul of academia. Dr. McTighe is an academic writing coach. And if you're looking for space and calm and joy in your writing, listen up. Turn up the volume here because you're going to want to hear Erin. Here she is now. Thank you. Thank you for joining us today. I'm talking to Dr. Erin McTighe, educational researcher and academic writing coach. Erin, thank you for being here. Thank you, Danielle. This is very exciting to be here. I'm looking forward to, to talking. I know I said to you before the recording um, that I kind of wanted to just jump right in based on the conversation we had about a month ago when you had said, no, I'm really worried that academia is losing its soul because the most committed people are the most burned out and they're leaving. And what do we have? once that happens. Um, and that hit me really hard then, and it continues to be something I'm thinking about. So will you just start to unpack that a little bit um, for us? Like, what is your big concern and what do we do about it? Yeah. So like to give context, I kind of put myself out there in the world as an academic writing coach. And so people hire me when they feel like I'm not getting enough done and my book's not getting published and not getting the grants. Um, but then I found out it's never really about the writing, um, like or almost never about the writing. It is about so much other parts, like the energy or they've lost their voice or the inspiration is fleeting. Um, and I've also um, been really eye-opening at how many of my clients, as we kind of go deeper into unpacking what's going on in their lives and how to change things and how to structure their world so you know they're, they're happy and, and they have a voice and things are feeling right, um, are coming to the decision like, I don't think I can do this and stay mm -hmm. in my job. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And these are like the very people that, I mean, universities should just be like showering with praise and, you know, bringing them cookies and asking them what they need <laughs> and like recognizing like you have these like gems here, like, let's celebrate them um, instead of chasing them off. These are the people that, you know, have these big visions. So they're, 
their like work with a lowercase w, they really want to be aligned as their like work uh, uppercase w, like their work in the world. Mm. Mm. And so they're trying to make huge differences, whether this is like helping the environment, um, raising the the opportunities in certain groups of people, like getting other voices out there, like big, big work that they're doing. And then they want it to align with their university work. And, and it seems like on the surface, like should be a good match, you know, like universities, yeah place for social mobility, creativity, new ideas, progressive thought, like, yeah, like, it seems like it should line up. Um, totally. Yeah. And, and a lot of the language of universities says it shall, like, should line up, you know, like, the job is supposed to be teaching, research, and service, and they're all represented, you know, in different degrees. But, like, when it comes right down to that, they're, like, figuring, like, yeah, they say this, but <laughs> that's not really what matters, you know? So, like, what really matters is at many places, like, our ones is, like, your grant money, you know? Um, so that amazing mentoring program that you started, like, yeah, like, you know, you get a pat on the back, but that isn't going to um, mm. be counted as part of your work, even though that's the work that actually <laughs> Like many of my clients feels like that's actually what gets them up in the morning, you know, that those type of activities. And so I just see it as these are the people that could have done many things. And they went into academia because they saw this as a place where they could transform people's lives, transforms mm -hmm. our way of thinking. Um, and so they came into academia with these great ideas and then are just feeling really um, kind of betrayed by the reality of their work. And these are also the people that, like, they don't just teach their courses to, you know, get a good student evaluation. They are, like, they're thinking long term, like, what am I going to do to challenge people's thinking? So they'll go out in the world with new ideas and do things different than the last generation, you know, so they're like looking for transformation and, and like pouring their heart and soul into their work. Um, and the and I feel like the university system is not, um, it's not really recognizing that it's not differentiating the teacher who gets the, you know, good student evaluations from the teacher who like transforms students' lives. Um, those are the people that I feel like are getting most worn out or burnt out and are most likely to leave to be like, I can't I can't do the big work in the system. I'm I'm going elsewhere. I'll be more agile. Mm. I can't do the big work in the system. Um, is is that your story too? Is that what happened to you? Yeah, that's a, I haven't really used that phrase before, but when you highlighted it, yeah, exactly. I I feel like I when I was leaving academia, I was like feeling so frustrated because there are parts of it that I loved and I remember once reading my job description because they were hiring somebody like for my same program and I'm like 
I read that job description and I think, oh, found the perfect job. Like, why doesn't it feel so perfect? It feels like Mm. really, really imperfect. So I was a professor of literacy education. I love, um, I love helping kids read. I love learning how to get more kids motivated into reading and have less trouble with reading. I ran a reading clinic. I like, I believe in that stuff. Um, (laughs) And I liked the research and I liked the writing and I loved mentoring my graduate students. And then I got involved with a program um, with a colleague um, and we co-mentored junior faculty and faculty in writing development. And it was, um, oh, it just was a great program. I love being part of that. Um, So there were all these things I loved. And then, but I just hated my job. Like I hated going to my job. Mm -hmm. Um, And a lot of that was, um, it was a really toxic work environment. It was very, um, it, it was very, very hierarchical. Um, I, I always felt like kind of uh, like I never felt relaxed. I always felt like I could be attacked at any moment. It was really mm. um, like I felt like there were landmines. Like I didn't know. I was like, oh man, like I thought I knew a lot of the departmental problems, but there was always more and you would step into something and that was somebody's pet project they started like 35 years ago and now and you just questioned it <laughs> you're like oh, I didn't know I didn't know that was sacred territory um so so um yeah so um in many ways when I left I was like okay how can I decouple these things I love which is mentoring I like supporting writers um I like teaching at times, not necessarily grading. Um, <laughs> I <laughs> like, um, and I like research. So, like, how can I do that? And like, I'm really pleased that like I did because I did it by both starting my own business and so with coaching people in writing. I get that there's there's an aspect of mentoring with the coaching, um, but I really get like to support writers and that's awesome and then I work part-time for a university in Norway as a researcher so I get to write there and I mentor grad students there Um, and then I teach teach workshops now and again which is kind of like teaching without the grading Um, (laughs) and, (laughs) and but what makes me so happy is that I I get to work with like amazing people all the time and if I do end up working with someone who's really tough to work with, um, takes a lot of energy, you know, I, I don't have to keep working with them. I can say, I don't think we're a good match. And like, you know, I couldn't, couldn't say that in academia with my colleagues. <laughs> I don't think we're a good match. One of us got to go. <laughs> so, um, so that's beautiful. Or I can be like, this is a really challenging client and I can, you know, charge them more because they take more energy and then I'm like yeah it's worth it like um so so yeah so for me that I think exactly that was very insightful that that I didn't I realized I didn't need the structure and when you're leaving the administration really like 
makes you believe you need that structure. That part of who you are is because you're affiliated with an R1 institution and who are you without that? Um, Mm -hmm. And that your value is connected to the fact that this is a a reputable institution. And, and that's, um, and it's, it's a little bit convincing, you know, when multiple people tell you that. (laughs) Yeah. And, and and so it's, it's interesting because I'm hearing like, on an individual level, like, I don't need the structure. I can take the pieces of my job that I like, and I can go over here and do it my way. Yet on a systemic level, you're a little worried about academia as a whole. Is that what I'm hearing? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Because it's like, at an individual level, it worked very well for me to leave. Um, but I still believe in academia. Like I, mm. I love professors and academics as a group, mm. um, uh, with all their like creativity and quirky intelligence and like, they're an amazing group and can be leaders in our society. But like, I don't like, I feel like they're very hamstring by their organizations is not letting them lean into what they would do best I feel like Mm -hmm. as it's getting really corporatized you need to be good in all of these areas at a certain level Um, that's not how we build a strong organization you know we should I think look at people's strengths and like let them lean into those strengths and if people are not particularly good or interested in something, then that's okay because you're an organization. It's almost like every faculty member is their own individual, sort of like individual company in a way where they have to get everything done and you're evaluated by your own productivity, um, not by the team or the group or anything like that. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm wondering, of the clients that come to you, Um, for writing help, how many of them are thinking seriously about leaving? Right now, at least half of mine are, Wow. yeah, are like on their way out, are starting side businesses that they're hoping in like a longer run can become Mm. their kind of exit strategy. Um, Mm. And, and then some are, I feel like I'll, number of my clients are more moving into what they can do on their own, like start their own business. Um, But then others have, one of my clients just left. She was a oceanographer. Um, She just got a job as a data scientist. She took a course that kind of helped her translate her knowledge of statistics and data analysis more towards, you know, the corporate lens. And she got a job that like pays three times what her faculty Mm. position did. She's very happy. Uh, Awesome. mm -hmm. And, and I know that your work is, um, is more of a, like you say, a life coach, but a writing coach really is that like, I can't tell you how many writing coaches I've talked to on the podcast, like a good handful. And everybody's like, it's not really about the writing. (laughs) So (laughs) I want to hear, I don't know, what are some of the main topics that you all are are talking about? Yeah, 
I would say the big one is boundaries. Like the that's like I like low hanging fruit is boundaries because it's like people. I mean, one of the first things is time. I don't have time to write, right? Um, yeah, because it's like writing is like this inefficient thing. You can't just like program it into your schedule and be like, I'm ready for half an hour and that's going to be like 300 words. Um, I'm <laughs> like, it doesn't work that way. So it can be really inefficient. So you need regular time. You need some longer blocks of time. You need this. And so, yeah. So one of the biggest things is boundaries. And that is going back to the soul. Like my clients, are the ones that are like asked to teach an overload class and they don't want to teach an overload class and they do not have time to teach an overload course or so. But they know the students and they know, okay, if this course isn't offered, these people, these Mm. students I know, they might not graduate. And then they're going to need more loans or this is going to cause this and this is going to cause all this stress. So it's the right thing to do and I'll teach it. And that's like, but like the system, like, like, then the system also doesn't get fixed because there's these like kind hearted people that keep stepping up to like provide the Band-Aid solution. And then they don't get their writing done. And so often when I ask questions like, so uh, why did you say yes? You know, when they say, I should say yes. Okay, what were you thinking at that moment? Um, That there's no one else to do it. And so that Mm -hmm. like, oh, that belief that there's no one else to do it. So I need to step up is I, I think probably one of the big things why like many academic books are not written. Um, there was no one else to do X, Y, and Z. Um, so yeah, a big one is boundaries, I would say. Um, another is, is a lot to do with like dealing with one saboteur. So you going to write and then those questions of like, who are you to write this? You don't know enough. Or like these, these thoughts of shame. Um, I'm not qualified. Like that comparison comes up, that scarcity, like I don't really have an original thought here. I'm just putting these ideas. So dealing with the internal saboteurs, um, like before we, these writing ever gets to an actual reviewer or editor. It's like those, those are the harshest reviewers that can just stop writers in their tracks. So, um, totally. Yeah. That's finding the voice. Um, finding, I was working with a client yesterday and she's co-authoring with a person that she just looks up to so much. And so I was asking like, so what's your contribution in this partnership? And she, her first thing was like, well, he knows everything I do and then more. Like, mm. well, but you're not, like, you know, if that's the mindset, like why even write, you know? Now that wasn't true. Um, and mm. she, <laughs> and through some more, some more um, kind of leaning into that, she, she realized yeah like she had some really unique values but um so yeah I would say one is boundaries that's like just creating the time and space then when you get there then those saboteurs come up then um another big piece is just having somebody that is in your court you know so like mentors 
uh, it's not their fault, but like mentors who are in your organization or maybe mentors who are your former advisor, like they all kind of have their own agenda and maybe want you to focus on this or spend time on that or they see value in this. And so a coach really, I think, helps writers figure out what is of value to them rather mm -hmm. than what other people are valuing and then that alignment of your values and where you put your energy just like then it's not nearly as hard to find the energy if it means like yeah you have to get up 45 minutes before your family to write every day and that's exhausting but if this is something that like you really believe in that can happen um mm. but like you need to figure out what do you really want to say, you know? And that's what I think sometimes um, even well-intentioned mentors and such can, can get in the way. Yes. Okay. Okay. I love all of this. And one of the things I guess I'm thinking about is what you had said at the beginning of your answer around writing being inefficient. And so I'm just thinking about like the process of writing and the saboteurs that come up and the like the thoughts about I'm the only one that can do it. And like, because it's this process where you have to be committed over and over and over again, how do you stay committed when all these things keep coming up to sort of take you off your path? What, what are some of the things that you do with your clients to keep them committed to the process, even when it gets really hard? That is a great question. And it's really, I would say, it really varies by my clients. But with some clients, in the same way, you know, you can have those saboteurs that are coming up, but you can find, kind of personify your inner wisdom and check in with that inner wisdom. Like so many of my clients have an inner wisdom. So, Oh, and, and for context, many more of my clients are female than male. Not that, not exclusively, but um, more. But and so many have uh, when we, if we do work around sort of who, where's your inner wisdom, will be like like a wise woman or a mother nature type figure, and then tapping into that energy um, at times of just when you're feeling so depleted or not knowing where to go. And then we also uh, encourage people to have allies. So like, I don't know, like one of my, my allies. So like I'm frequently in my head too much, like not surprising academic and all. Mm -hmm. <laughs> but like, so I realized that um, I made an ally of a firefighter and there's a little axe that like reminds me that sometimes like you, like if you're a firefighter, you can't just analyze the fire. You don't go and walk around it for a while <laughs> and like figure out the pattern. Like, no, you have to run in there with your axe and like trust that you get in there. You're going to know how to deal with it because you've dealt with other fires in the past. And so that is like an ally for me because there are times um like yeah like I gotta this is one of those times where I gotta run in there feeling like I don't actually know what's in there but I gotta go in and and deal with it <laughs> so like <laughs> that's my personal one but that's that idea of like inner wisdom and ally and so when my clients 
when we can tap into those type of imagery, those type of figures doing something like whether it's it's a sticky note with like just a drawing of that or it's a little stone that reminds them but something that can become part of their their um like something tangible that they can look at or hold on to in moments of of doubt as well as setting up rituals like my clients many of them will have a ritual of you know free writing like just sort of figuring out what's works for them like free writing or using a certain like like the essential oil diffusers <laughs> like like creating mm-hmm. a space that brings them to this writing place and works to block out all of the busyness of the world so that they're able to go deep um, is is really useful. And then on a very practical level, like so much is like asking clients. So so what's your what's your, like the alert situation on your email and your phones and all of those things, like figuring out what do we need to turn off, like physical mm. boundaries, closing doors, setting like turning off those things that beep at us and send us back into this other part of our life. Um, Just again, like creating the space and trying to tap into, tap into that energy um, that Mm. is connected to their values and and their uh, goals. I guess what I loved about what you just said is blocking out the busyness, creating space that's connected to your values. And um, as I sort of feel your words, I can feel a little more relaxed knowing that space is there or could be there. I'm wondering what is sort of your own processes for writing. Um, How did you become a writing coach and um, what were sort of the hard lessons to get to this place where you knew how to anchor yourself into this deeper, quieter space? My lessons are kind of, it's sort of funny that I feel like I did it a little bit backwards. I, so Pat Goodson, so she has written a great book. Uh, what is She's written multiple books, but she has um, becoming an academic writer there. So Pat Goodson was a colleague of mine. She wasn't in my department, but she was in my college. And I met her when I was an assistant professor and there was like a, you know, a thing had been sent out that said like um, to like have a discussion about how to support your graduate students in their writing. And I thought, oh, yeah. I really need that because I, I didn't really have a process <laughs> that I was even particularly well aware of. And I certainly didn't know how to teach somebody how to have a process as I didn't particularly have one. My advisor was like a binge writer and um, a really good writer, like 
the final result was good, but the process was like painful and stressful and terrible and last minute. Um, so like I had a non-example. I was like, okay, I don't want that. I don't really know how to achieve the alternative. And oh gosh, I can't be passing this family tradition along because like that was terrible and painful in grad school. Um, so I go to this um, and really only one other person showed up. So it was me, Pat, and one other <laughs> professor, which is disappointing because it was a really big college. Um, but anyway, <laughs> one of those things. But I started with Pat. She had been writing a book about academic writing and breaking down the process into exercises and then starting to help faculty mentor students in writing. And so I was learning how to sort of be a mentor and a support and teach people how to write. But I was learning how to be a writer alongside, you know what I mean? Which I yeah. think was part of her. I think that was like part of her whole strategy, like this sort of subversive thing. If we can teach the sure. faculty how to teach them, maybe they'll accept some of these ideas. Um, <laughs> or maybe the dean's office would only support, I don't know, graduate student writing. Um, and she was like, we got to get, you know, we got to teach these faculty too. So I started like working with her to do, you know, first just to attend workshops, but then do workshops and then eventually teach entire courses on academic writing and doing all of this. So because of that, yeah, I got to read a lot of books about writing, try things out. Um, even in the academic writing classes, I remember a student one day, we would, we would usually have like a topic that we would be going over and then because it would be a long class like three hours or something so we would sort of have a, a topic agenda and then we would like open it up for a discussion and then we would do feedback and so one day somebody just like slapped the table and she's like okay gotta be honest here because we all know this is part coursework and this is part group therapy so i'm gonna be honest <laughs> <laughs> so I, I was like, yeah, I was running group therapy sessions about writing and I was learning a lot. Um, yeah. And I didn't position myself as like, I've got this, you know, I've like, you know, I positioned myself. I am learning how to try to make this part of my life um, with all the other demands and, and how to try how to make this also sort of joyful instead of stressful and things like that. I was very interested in that um, because writing had been so stressful and painful in grad school. And I was like, I don't, I know I, it doesn't need to be that way. So it was through mm -hmm. that work where I became more a mentor and a teacher of writing that I became a writer. And sometimes, and sometimes I still feel this way. Sometimes I am like, oh, do as I say, not as I do, where I will like, <laughs> have some very bad practices. And I'm like, you know better. Um, but I fall off the wagon and I get back on and, you know, so. It's, it's what are what is your strategy when you fall off the wagon? Like uh, I'm I'm just thinking about some of the things you you said previously about you know having a tangible thing to hold on to to get you back on, and I'm wondering like what what your thing is at this moment at this point. Oh yeah, um, okay, I'll tell you the things that are on my desk right now. So I have a sticky note <laughs> that has <laughs> has a question. What is the most valuable? 
most useful, most powerful thing you can do right now to move the work mm. forward. Because I sometimes go to the easy tasks and avoid the important tasks, you know. Oh my gosh, so many of us do that, yeah. <laughs> yeah, so that question is very centering. I have another question because I will talk myself out of planning. I will be like, oh, I'm too busy to plan. You know, that's <laughs> the most useless fallacy. Um, but it comes up again and again. And then I just have a little question. It says, would your day be better with some planning? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. <laughs> Awesome. <laughs> I love that you're like looking at your desk right now reading this test. Thank you for that, by the way. Yeah, it's very real. And I'm also thinking about um, how you had said, you know, you first went to Pat Goodson's little grad student teaching thing um and there were only three of you there and you're like and it was a really really big college and I'm thinking about um sort of what we talked about earlier in our conversation about the burnout and the overwork and the like like is it that we don't go to these things because I'm thinking about like teaching and learning centers too, right? Mm -hmm. People don't go. Um, do we not go to these things because we're just so strapped for time? We feel like we just don't have the space to work on that kind of sort of luxury. Yeah. Do you think? No, I think, I think that, I think there, are, I had many, many colleagues who care deeply about their graduate students. Um, and we're not there that um, and it's exactly yeah they just didn't feel like they had the time and space and um, Pat also set up a program um, like there were many parts to this power writing program but one was you donated an hour of your time to um, give feedback to people on their writing and so like people would go through a training and then donate an hour of your time and, and graduate students or, or junior faculty or, you know, anybody really could sign up to just sit down and it would be exactly an hour, never more, um, and give feedback to people on, on their writing. And, um, and I remember every year being like every semester being like signing up for my time being like, Oh, I so don't have this. But then but also recognizing it would be frequently like the highlight of my day because mm. I would meet somebody new and they, we would, I would read about something I frequently knew nothing about and we would talk about what was going on and they would be, they would leave less stressed and grateful. And I would feel like, yeah, like I did something today. Like I did something like I did something important today that one hour. And, um, and so I, t I told that to Pat, how I always struggled with this, like, I don't want to give an hour because that's like in the middle of my day when I'm in the office. Uh, it always feels like a lot. And, and like first how that felt ridiculous that an hour was that like precious, mm. like am I mm. that strapped for time? Like that, that's wrong. Um, I was like, but selfishly, I'm like, 
those hours frequently are the highlight of my day. I was like, the other highlight is frequently lunch. Um, so <laughs> I, I don't want to, like we would play a game with my kids when I would pick them up from daycare. Like, what's the highlight of your day? And they even called me out. They're like, you usually say lunch, mom. And I was like, oh gosh, it's true. Um, so I needed that. Um, and she said, she was like, oh yeah. She was like, well, she was like, yeah, it's really like, it is self-serving because we best learn about writing by looking at other people's writing and giving feedback. Mm. And like, she was like, it's actually, it makes us be better writers. So yeah, it may kind of look like we're donating our time, but we're also um, giving an hour to be learners ourselves. And I was like, oh yeah. Um, maybe you should tell people that so we could get more people to sign up. <laughs> but, right. but yes, but it's hard. It's really hard. That scarcity, like that scarcity mindset of I never have enough time and I never have enough energy and enough sleep is so tough. Okay. So can we talk about that for a second? Cause this comes up all the time. And I talked to uh, Dr. Santa Bronson on the podcast a few weeks ago and she's like, Okay, so there's this time thing that seems like a problem for everyone, but it's actually what's underneath that that is the problem. And I'm wondering what you say about that, um, because you just sat here and outlined like, if you donate this hour of time, you contribute to your own writing growth, you feel lighter, you have more gratitude, you're more energetic, like, because you gave something that you didn't think you had. Um, you, it, it, actually, it, it actually came back as, as very much an investment. Um, and so I don't know, would you say anything else to that? Yeah, I mean, I do really think it is I mean okay so I mean I think there is definitely overwork and there's a need to set boundaries and and focus and and so like it is true that people are trying to fit too much into their time but then there is also this mindset that I think can be um can be just as harmful that this belief that I don't have this time and I can't give and then even when I'm giving the time I'm not enjoying it because in the back of my head I'm thinking I should be should be doing this and I should be doing that and that's not done and like I can't be present in this moment um mm. I remember um one time so um um uh, so <laughs> well for con contact my department I worked in like I said I was miserable it was really toxic and um and so I I managed to like on the outside things looked like I was doing fine I had tenure I um I was being quote productive and in, in terms of the markers of academia um like I I was healthy enough kind of thing. So like, I looked like I had it together. I didn't, but I looked like it. And mm -hmm. a lot of people would come to my office and, and cry and just tell me about like mm -hmm. all these struggles they were having. And, and I would, you know, I would be honored that somebody would come and be vulnerable to me. Um, and I would also be frustrated in that I didn't know how to help them most of the time, but I could at least listen. 
But then at the end of the day, I would frequently go home and I would tell my husband, who he's, he's, he also was a professor at the same university, but he would be like, wow, nobody ever comes and cries in my office. Um, and, and he was like, it happens to you like all the time. And I would be like, I totally did not get like anything on my work done because there was this crisis and, you know, I couldn't like be like, hey, could you come back tomorrow? (laughs) So not, not okay. Um, But so then he was like, well, maybe this is part of your work. Like, Erin, maybe Mm. you're thinking about your work wrong. Maybe your work isn't just your to-do list. Maybe your work is supporting the people that you care about and to just think of it that way and just, you know, build that in. Like, this is part of your work because you want to do that. Like, you want to be there for them. You're not resentful of their presence. You're just resentful that your other work didn't get done, you know? Um, And for some reason, when he said that, maybe that's part of your work, like, that felt great. And it was really freeing. Yeah. And it helped me get out of that scarcity mindset. Unfortunately, about a month later, I talked to an associate dean and I said, you know, (laughs) I've had this like reframe and it's really helping me that this is part of my work. And she was like, that's not part of your work, Erin. Um, she was like, your work is to get grants and do this. And that is distracting from your work. And that was just wow. was like pouring cold water over me. Cause it was like, oh, I found a life raft. And I'm like, and then you just punctured it. Mm-hmm. You were like, and I'm going under again. Like, here I go. Wow. Uh, and we've come full circle. Yeah. I mean, that's like right? losing, <laughs> academia losing its soul because yeah. of that kind of thing. Yeah, wow. that's my work. Like, no, I'm supposed to, I'm like, what am I supposed to do? Like, like, oh, there's counseling centers. I'm like, that's not, you know, that's not what they're looking for. They're not looking for a mental health counselor. They're working, how do you navigate this minefield that we call mm-hmm. our department? And like, how, like you know, that's, they don't, mm-hmm. like, yes, probably a mental health counselor would be useful too. But they, that, that is not what they were coming to me for, you know? Yeah. Right. Okay. So as we wrap up this conversation, I want to know if there's anything that feels sort of left unsaid that would help you to feel comfortable um, and complete in our conversation. One thing that I was thinking about today when I was thinking about what we might talk about or so is um, like, so when we talk about the idea of burnout and such and like so you can think of burnout like kind of from an energy perspective is the demands versus the supports and that like if your job demands are way outweighing the supports that you have like now you are in a situation where you can approach burnout but I think there's like another piece to it too which made me think so I am a trained mediator. That um, is something I, I did when I was at um, Texas A&M. I did a mediation because um, program went through this because um, there's a lot of conflict in our department and I needed some tools to deal with that. Um, 
but it was interesting. So in the in the class, like we learned about these different models of conflict management, like things we do, we might avoid, we might be competitive, we might accommodate, and like compromise is usually held up as the ideal. But my instructor said, you know, you can't always compromise, like not everything, like if it's, if you're compromising about something that's on a continuum, like money or time, you, you can compromise because it's a continuum. And so I can be okay with a little less money or a little more time or something like that. But like when it's values, we can't. So we can't just be like, oh, I'll give up a little integrity here. Um, like that doesn't <laughs> work. Like you still feel terrible. Um, and I feel like with the burnout, there is the burnout from overwork, but there's a different feeling when it's like this values thing and you're being mm. asked to compromise your values. And I mm. think that is like no amount of life hacks or productivity strategies or something is going to help because it's not just a matter of time or money or something on a continuum. Like when it is this major values conflict, that is, you know, that is a lot harder to work with and needs to be recognized as such. And I think a lot of times that is what why people are leaving because it's not something that can just be solved without a big overhaul, like without the system really changing um, because they are like, I can't just shift my values. So we would need to shift the values of, or the culture of the organization in order to keep the people with the soul to stay. Wow, what a beautiful way to end. Um, Dr. Erin McTighe, please tell us how we can reach you if we're interested in your coaching. Oh, thank you. Yes, my uh, business is called The Positive Academic. So if you Google The Positive mm -hmm. Academic, you could go to my website. Um, and yeah, that and thank you so much for um, talking about these things that I think about all the time. And it's really nice to have somebody to uh, who like knows, understands the context of which you are talking um, without a lot of, of back explanation. So thank you so much, Danielle, for your whole podcast that I have been listening to and everything. Aaron, it is so my pleasure. Thank you so much for being here. Thanks for listening to Self-Compassionate Professor. Find me on LinkedIn at Danielle Delamar, on Twitter and Instagram at Danielle SC Prof, or schedule a free coaching consult at selfcompassionateprofessor.com. Be well.